Welcome to the Monitor Daily Podcast. It's Wednesday, February 21st. Thanks for joining us. I'm Mark Saffenfield. And I'm Jasper Davidoff. Is China really the enemy of the West? The easy answer is yes. It plays into simplistic narratives. That's why I've always appreciated the work of Monitor writers such as Fred Weir, Taylor Luck, and Ann Scott Tyson, to name a few. They write not from a Western perspective, but as someone with a genuine affection for the good on all sides. And they seek simply to understand the forces at work. Today, we have Anne weighing in on the China question. If you want to understand the evolving relationship between the United States and China, her story is a fresh perspective. For our selection of top news briefs from the wire services today, please go to csmonitor.com daily. Now, today's Monitor Stories. Our first story. Is trust the bedrock of international relations or predictability? In recent years, the U.S. and China have had to learn how to navigate growing mistrust and make progress toward stability. Trust between Washington and Beijing has hit rock bottom. At the root of the decline is Washington's belief that China seeks to undermine the current international order and Beijing's view that the United States seeks to curb China's rise. Exacerbating such fears on both sides are deep feelings of betrayal over words and actions that don't align. The spiral of mistrust assumes a life of its own, leading both sides to double down on signals of resolve and fueling extreme, at times cartoonish, narratives about the other, says Michael Swain, an expert in Chinese defense and foreign policy. To be sure, trust between nation-states is often challenging. A level of suspicion has always existed between the U.S. and China. But today's extreme trust deficit is leading to alternative approaches, ones that stress top-level communications, transparent competition, and reciprocity as ways to promote predictability, experts say. President Joe Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping signaled their interest in a more stable relationship when meeting outside San Francisco last November. That has led to other critical dialogues, and high-level military communications have resumed after more than a year's hiatus, a step towards preventing dangerous miscalculations. We are definitely at a better place, says Yun Sun, director of the Stimson Center's China program. The two governments can actually talk to each other without having a complete meltdown. The story was reported by Ann Scott Tyson for The Monitor. In the midst of a grim third winter of a grinding war, Ukrainian soldiers voice mixed emotions. Gratitude for U.S. support so far, but concern that Americans unsure of their global role won't supply the ammunition the soldiers need to stop Russia. As the two-year anniversary nears of Russia's all-out invasion, the optimism that heralded Ukraine's against-all-odds defense has faded. It had diminished throughout 2023 with a failed counteroffensive that ran headlong into heavily mined Russian positions. One message is constant from Ukrainian soldiers at multiple points along the front lines facing Russia, an urgent plea for weapons and ammunition on a scale and timeline that only the United States can provide. 
On a frozen battlefield in eastern Ukraine, the main topic of discussion among Doug and soldiers in an artillery unit is of three jolts of bad news they see as closely interlinked. That the city of Evdivka had fallen after months of fierce fighting that Ukrainian officials estimate cost Russia some 17,000 dead troops. That in Washington, the U.S. House of Representatives had recessed until the end of February, further delaying a vote on a $60 billion military aid package. And still being digested that the soldiers had to substantially cut back and cap the number of shells they can fire at the Russian enemy each day. Even without this limitation, there was not enough, says a squad leader who gives the name Sasha. Soon we're going to have to fight them with our hands. This story was reported by Scott Peterson in Kremina Direction, Ukraine, for The Monitor. A new government is beginning to take shape in Pakistan, but not the one its people elected. After what many believe to be the most brazenly rigged election in the country's history, will this new coalition be able to steer the country through political and economic turmoil? Nearly two weeks after the general election, Pakistan finds itself on the brink of being governed by a coalition of the also-rans. Defying all odds, candidates affiliated with former Prime Minister Imran Khan's party, Pakistan Tariqi Insaf, emerged from the February 8th polls as the largest voting bloc in parliament. This resulted in several rounds of negotiations between the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz and the Pakistan People's Party to create a coalition government that could counter PTI's influence. On Tuesday night, the two parties reached a power-sharing agreement. The deal has restored a degree of confidence in the markets, with the Pakistan Stock Exchange rallying by over 1,000 points. Yet throughout the country, protests continue to rage over alleged election rigging, and a perilous economic situation has left almost 40% of the population below the poverty line. Without a clear mandate to govern, the incoming coalition may find it difficult to get Pakistan's economy back on track. Given the lack of a majority by any of the parties of the coalition, the new government will be walking on eggshells, says journalist Taha Siddiqui. Plus, with such a weak coalition, the powerful military establishment will be able to easily manipulate the parliament into doing its bidding, as it has been known to do in the past. This story was reported by Hassan Ali in Islamabad for The Monitor. Local newsrooms in Utah are trusting collaboration over competition to shore up solutions for the critically low water levels of the Great Salt Lake. When the Great Salt Lake sank to its lowest levels on record, a group of Utah community leaders were busy looking for hope. They formed the Great Salt Lake Collaborative to invest in a solutions-driven approach to covering the health and environmental concerns arising from the lake's shrinking shores. The collaboration of 19 news, community, and education partners began in 2022 through a grant from the Solutions Journalism Network. Trust in a solutions approach has meant investing in relationships with readers through events like panel presentations and a book club. Participating newsrooms have sent local reporters to analogous bodies of water in California, Israel, and Kazakhstan. Trust has taken another form, too, as former newsroom competitors turn to collaboration, says Heather May, director of the Great Salt Lake Collaborative and the Lifelong Utahan. Ms. May spoke with the Monitor about the group's distinctive coverage and what its impact looks like. Focusing solely on the crisis doesn't create room for people to get involved or to feel hope that what they do matters, says Ms. May. 
That's why this collaborative has been so important to the community and helped, I think, really engage the community because we focus on solutions. This story was reported by Sarah Matusek for The Monitor. Running is often considered widely accessible. If you are able-bodied and have running shoes, you too can be a runner. Racing, however, is expensive. That's where Team Stride for Stride comes in. Tom O'Keefe loves running. It's kind of this equalizer. He says just about anyone can do it. But when he signed up for his first road race, he was surprised to see mostly white runners towing the starting line. It didn't mesh with the number of talented runners of color he personally knew. While many factors likely contributed to this homogeneity, he saw one clear hurdle that he could help to remove, the cost of racing bibs. Mr. O'Keefe started the running collective Stride for Stride with the simple goal of giving everyone the opportunity not just to run, but to race. The collective purchases race bibs and raises funds for charity bibs for those who can't afford them, sponsoring nearly 400 runners from 26 countries across its Boston, New York, and Miami teams. We are family, says runner Ramon René Ballesteros Aguirre. Finishing the 2023 Boston Marathon was the best day of his life, he says. This story was reported by Isa Myers in Brookline, Massachusetts, for The Monitor. Now commentary from The Monitor's editorial board on the light Navalny left to Russia. Recent protests in the United States, Israel, and Iran have been notable for being leaderless. Held together mainly by civic values, they were able to draw greater attention to their message than a messianic leader. This is now the position in which Russia's democratic movement finds itself, following what appears to be the killing of opposition figure Alexei Navalny. His widow, Yulia Navalnaya, vows to carry forward the campaign against the regime of Vladimir Putin. It's too early to tell if many Russians will coalesce behind her. Yet, like her husband, she reflects the vision of a Russia that someday embraces honest governance and a freedom from fear. Russia can be a normal European country, she said this week, a country where political conflicts are resolved through fair elections and not through prisons, poisons, and bullets, full of dignity justice, and love. Her words mirror her husband's conviction that individual Russians have the capacity to lift up their country. That's his legacy, the raising of at least one generation of politically aware and kind people who understand that democracy, truth, freedom of speech is a good thing, said one of his campaign's volunteers, Anna Kovalevskaya. That's a wrap for the news. You can find the full-length versions of these stories in today's issue or at csmonitor.com daily. For more Monitor audio, including our serial podcasts, go to csmonitor.com podcasts. Thank you for joining us today. Tomorrow, we'll have another fresh perspective on a major item of world news. Our Fred Weir will weigh in on how the Ukraine war looks from Russia. What is the mood in Russia two years on? Today's Christian Science Spiritual Perspective contributor shares how at any moment 
we can enter what Jesus described as our closet of prayer to discover more of the pure goodness we receive from God. You can find the column in today's issue or at csmonitor.com daily. To learn more about Mary Baker Eddy, the Monitor's founder, check out Seekers and Scholars, a podcast series from the Mary Baker Eddy Library. This series celebrates the spirit of inquiry that is illuminating engagement with Eddy's life, writings, and ideas in a wide variety of fields. Find it at marybakereddylibrary.org slash Seekers and Scholars, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We want to give a quick thanks to our staff, including today's audio production team, Tim Malone and Leonardo Bevilacqua. This podcast is produced by the Christian Science Monitor in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. Copyright 2024.